there's lots of stuff that I'm responsible for and I need to take responsibility for. And I think of my own experience. I've had the counselling. I've done the hard yards and the hard work. I've shed the tears. I've talked about it. I take care of myself. And yet in these specific institutional environments, I'm still having these really adverse reactions. Is there actually something toxic about these larger environments that's contributing to how I'm feeling? Because I'm having very specific negative reactions in a lot of these places. So I'm trying to flesh that out. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to the Better Thinking Podcast. Today's episode, I speak with Dr. Benjamin Habib, who I reached out to talk about his lived experience with having a panic attack on national TV. I think what uh, Dr. Habib has done exceptionally well is the way he's addressed and managed and coped with his anxiety. And he talks about his story from being young into his professional career about how he's gone about approaching that and I think you'll find a nice gem towards the end of this episode with regards to how uh, Ben's looking at his progression from working individually to wanting to connect with with, with others as part of his journey. I think he explains it really well so make sure you listen through all the way to the end. Also don't forget to subscribe, share, give a thumbs up you know, tell everyone if you're getting a lot of value out of these, tell them to go out and listen to it. It may, means the world to me to go out and uh, share this with as many people as you can. So enjoy the episode. Welcome to Better Thinking Podcast. You're with Nesh Nicklick. And today's guest is Dr. Benjamin Habib. And I've invited him to the show because a little while ago, I came across his, uh, I suppose, video of, of a television moment that he was experiencing uh, a panic attack and I just thought it was such a great idea to invite him to the show to talk about his lived experience in, in the way, more so about how he's approached his experience post this interview. Um, but also to find out about you know the lead up to this because so many of our listeners uh, understand anxiety somewhat, some through lived experience, some through working with people with anxiety, others with you know family members who've, who've experienced that themselves. So um, welcome to the show, Ben. I really appreciate you coming along. Yeah, thanks, Nash. Thanks for the invitation. Maybe we can kind of start, uh, obviously, we, we, we kind of touched base and, and, and connected over that, that first video, um, and I will make sure that we've shared it with, with, with our audience so they can appreciate the, the level of, of discomfort or what this brings about, uh, but maybe you can tell us about how this all came about you know, for you, um, maybe starting at uh, the interview, but then we can kind of go backwards or forwards depending on, you know, uh, uh, what's going to fit best. Well, let's start with the interview and then we can explore the, the timeline either way. So I got invited to speak on ABC News Breakfast back in February 2016 uh, just to speak on my uh, normal area of research expertise on North Korean security. 
Uh, I was going to go on there and say things that I'd said many times in the public domain. Uh, so there wasn't anything complicated about what I was going to say. Uh, you know, I speak in public very often as a lecturer. Uh, uh, but what I found was that the TV studio environment was radically different and much more stressful than any of the other environments that I've typically spoken in. Uh, and I didn't realise that until I was immersed in there. Uh, but by that time, I was so overwhelmed, not just by the stimuli, but the, the rising anxiety that I'd been experiencing in the oh, 12 hours leading up to it. So the interview was on a Monday morning. Uh, ABC producer contacted me about four o'clock on the Sunday evening prior, said, yeah, I'll come on. Uh, and immediately, as soon as that happened, I'm like, oh, starting to get nervous, you know, which is which is normal. I get nervous before any, any kind of public speaking engagement, no matter how often I've done it. It seems uh, like you weren't particularly hesitant. It was something that you'd been asked to do on prior occasions in different contexts this was another mm. moment to go out and obviously share your expertise. And so you took the call and said, yeah, sure, I'll come in the morning. Yeah, and I'd done another live TV interview down at the South Bank Studios uh, the year before. Uh, that was a little different because it was a live cross. Uh, the program host was in Sydney. So I was just in a little dark room staring down the barrel of a camera with no one around me uh, at 9 o'clock at night. Uh, and even though I had the same feelings of anxiety coming in, uh, I got through that. The interview was great, no problem. So taking this request, thought, yeah, I've done this before. I can do this. Uh, but as, as the Sunday night dragged on, uh, you know, I was just so wired. Uh, I remember watching an NBA basketball game just to chill out and relax. I can't remember who played or what happened. I was just, I was not. I was not in the moment. I didn't sleep a wink. I was just going over my head in my head what I was going to say on the program. Is that what you Got were stuck up. on in terms of what am I going to say? What are the words? What, what, what were you kind of you know? What was keeping you up or bothering you? Well, in the afternoon, what am I going to wear? <laughs> I don't usually I don't usually suit up. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, what am I going to wear? When got something to wear? Uh, then it's, yeah, what am I going to say uh, and how, how am I going to order what I'm going to say? Like I know topically what I want to say, but how am I going to deliver? I live about 25 kilometres out of the CBD and to get to the, the South Bank Studios in Melbourne uh, of ABC at six in the morning, you know, there was, there was logistical considerations because I don't usually do that. Uh, I don't have to commute into the city for work, so it's not... Uh, a commute that I do very often. Ended up getting there a bit early, so I'm cruising around South Bank at 6.30 in the morning just with nothing to do. And again, I'm still thinking about what I'm going to deliver. Go into the studio, they let me in. Uh, then I go in the back, uh, they take me to the makeup room uh, where I had my face made up. Lovely makeup ladies in there, they were really nice to chat to. Uh, and then they just sent me uh, in the back to sit there for about half an hour until my slot came up. Uh, I think my session got delayed by about 10 minutes as well because they did a live cross to a politician somewhere. And so I'm just sitting there ruminating, 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 waiting for my go. And then they lead me in to the studio proper and sit me on the desk. Uh, 
you know, next to Virginia Trioli and, and Michael Rowland. Uh, and I notice it's, it feels like you're in the mission control of the space shuttle in Houston. It's, there's monitors everywhere. You know, you don't see any of this on, on TV because uh, you can just see what's on the camera shot. There's so much going on in the studio. It's a very confined space. Uh, there's, start, there's computer screens in the desk that you're looking at that you can't see uh, from the TV angle. Uh, so I've had no sleep. I'm absolutely wired from anxiety. I'm sitting in this really high stimulation environment, feeling a bit claustrophobic. Uh, and I can just feel my, my physical reaction to this. Like it, I remember writing in the article, you know, it feels like I was buzzing with electricity, like I was hooked up to some kind of you know, electrical machine. You and wrote even a, about your skin feeling yeah. different. The, you've, you've almost touched on a few things, just, just sort of listening uh, around about unfamiliarity. There, there, there was mm. so much uncertainty from, I don't usually wear a suit, what am I going to wear? So how am I going to get into the city? You know, what train, what bus, what, what uh, you know, place do I stop off at? Where's the actual location? How do I get there? As a matter of fact, it sounds like you got there quite early because, you know, the, the, the anxiety of don't want to be late and need to make sure I'm there on time. Then the huge unfamiliar, unfamiliar place of, you know, whether it be the makeup sort of space or, you know, the, the, the waiting 30 minutes, potentially 40 with the live cross, uh, you know, and then coming into this room with what, 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 what it sounds like, you know, monitors and lights and people, you know, cameras and displays uh, that seems, seems quite daunting and, and you talk about it as being quite confined. Um, so quite, mm-hmm. quite a lead up to, to, to this moment. Yeah, yeah. So by the time... You know, they do the lead into the story and then they ask me the first question and Michael and Virginia are looking at me and I'm almost having an out-of-body experience. Like I'm, I'm there but I'm not there. I'm too mired in my physical reaction and I'm essentially frozen. Uh, so can you, talk, can you talk us through that a little bit in terms of what, what you can remember about the physical part, what, what kind of drew you in, what you were feeling, what it was like? Uh, really tense. Uh, you know, sweating. Uh, I'm doing this with my fingers, which is a nervous thing that I do from time to time. I remember one of the viewers who contacted me said they noticed that and they do it too. <laughs> and that they knew when they were, before the interview started, they could see what was going to happen because they could, you know, recognize that physical tell. I noticed you stopped breathing. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're holding your breath, you know, just, just that tightness that you're talking about. It, it, came from what I saw, it was like this holding of breath, tightening up. Yeah, so when you feel your upper body tightening up, of course your lungs can't expand and and you don't breathe properly. Uh, And then I can just feel my mind is just fogging out and all of those things that I know really well and wanted to communicate, they're just, I couldn't access them. I wasn't there. And then you can see, like when I'm speaking, I just can't grab it. I can't get the information. I can't communicate properly uh to the to the interviewer's credit they tried they could see i was struggling they tried changing tack with a different angle on the questions they did that two or three times uh which i actually found really unhelpful because it just it made me have to reframe where i was at and and set me back in the process but it didn't matter really what they would have done at that point uh 
you know, the inertia of all the anxiety that built up to that meant that in the moment I was, it was not going to happen. And in the end, I just said, look, I can't do this. Uh, they cut away to another story straight away, and, and that was that. Mm. You mentioned that uh, in, in, in your article that Virginia put her hand on you immediately after that and kind of just said, it's okay, that she, mm. she kind of got it, she understood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I could tell in her, in her eyes, she looked me directly in the eyes, sort of touched me in the eyes and said, look, it's okay, uh, with great empathy. And, uh, and then I got a job to do, so then they got to keep on rolling. I got escorted out and just left to my own devices. So I'm, I'm walking around like a zombie in a daze. Thinking, Are those feelings still there? Oh, yeah, I can't watch it again. Uh, it just makes me too uncomfortable. And wow. again, where was the last time you watched it? Probably, I've only watched it again once. So at the end of that week, the project on Channel Ten did a story on it, uh, where they, you know, showed snippets of the original interview footage, uh, backed by a voiceover from my blog talking about how I was feeling in the moment. So it was very tastefully done. Uh, but uh, when the producer contacted me about that the day before, they go, oh, you want to come on the show and talk about this? <laughs> and my response was, are you fucking serious? <laughs> <laughs> we want to do this again, do we? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I think they, they go, all right, okay, do you mind if we do it this way? I said, yeah, sure, like, it's all good. Because by that time I'd written the article uh, and – the response that it was getting, you know, it was already, I could see this was exploding everywhere. So, yeah, this is a story that I'm happy for you to tell because it's, it's already out there and I've talked about it. Uh, but it, had, it has come up on, in, in Twitter feeds, people are saying, well, don't show the story again because that's traumatic to Ben and to have to relive it. And it's traumatic for other people that might get triggered by it. My response to that personally like it happened in the public domain, it's always going to be in the public domain. So, you know, I'm not going to watch it again, but it's there. Sure, sure. Why do you think it had such big uptake? What what about that drew people to it? Uh, I think most people don't have the language to describe what it feels like physically to experience anxiety. Uh, and often the way that it's thought of is, oh, it's just seeing your head. Uh, and it's not well understood that this is a full-spectrum emotional, physical, uh, psychological experience. It's the lens through which you experience reality. It's not just a thing on the side that happens. Uh, and someone who, you know, there's nothing unique about my experience. This kind of thing happens to people all the time. Uh my what was unique about me is that it happened so publicly and that I'm a reasonable writer and I have a platform to be able to put that out there into the world. Uh, so that was what was uh, that's what was able to take hold that I was able to give a voice to something that many people feel uh, and found useful to be able to use to communicate where they were at with, with the people around them. Can I ask? Um uh, I mean, there, there, there's in some sense a traditional set of experiences that are common um, when, when, when we kind of talk about, you know, panic uh, 
you know, and obviously there are other, you know, there's a plethora of other ones, for example, you know, the sensations on your skin that you felt and, 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 and so on. But you, did you feel a pressure on your chest at all? You know, like a, a kind of like a weight bearing on your, on your chest or pain on your chest? I definitely felt pressure. I felt, you know, that butterfly feeling. Yeah, in like turning in your stomach. Yeah, yeah. Dry really mouth Yep. It looked like it looked like from the start. Of your mouth was yeah, yep. yeah. Um, did your vision change? Did did it become a bit more blurry or more sharp in terms of things being more defined, brighter, darker? I don't know if my vision changed, but because I was so detached from my physical being in that moment. I don't know if foggy is the right word, but yeah, yeah. I was definitely experiencing my environment in a different way because I was I was not in place. Yeah, I was not in my body in that moment. Now, there's there's often kind of like a smothering feeling or I can't catch my breath. Is that where the I can't do this anymore, I've got to escape, I've got to get out of here, that, that, that's what it appeared like um, towards the end of that? Um, is that what? What kind of showed up for you? Well, I just realised it wasn't happening and I wasn't going to get anywhere. And I think if you're feeling that uncomfortable in any situation, you're under no obligation to anyone to keep subjecting yourself to that. Uh, so I thought, I called it. I'm not going to try and grind through this. This is, I'm not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was, you know, there was a great shame walking out after that and thinking, I didn't perform. This is my job to come and do this. And I felt like I didn't perform like I was meant to do as a as an academic professional. So I was feeling really ashamed at that moment, uh, you know, feeling like I'd let myself down, hadn't represented myself well, uh, you know, and was worried about you know getting trolled for that as well, you know, and what that would mean to you know to fail in public. Is that way? Is that the way you saw it at the time, failure? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah, so all of that stuff swirling around in your head. You know, I'm still feeling, you know, really disembodied. It's peak hour in the morning in Melbourne, so that area is now filled with thousands of people, and I'm getting back on the train at Flinders Street to go home. Oh God! Uh, and I just want to crawl up, crawl up in a hole and and hide away. Got home, had a had a good cry. Uh, but when I was going back on the train, that's when I made the choice. That, okay, I'm going to write about this. So the decision was made on the train. Wow, tell me about that. Uh, well, I'm just sitting there just <laughs> trying to hide away. <laughs> and I, it was almost, I didn't intellectually think it through. I just thought, what, what can I do here to cope and get this out and just reattached to my feelings. I thought, writing, that's the thing I'm good at. Uh, I'll put this on my blog and just talk about it. I didn't do it to help people. I didn't do it to be a public voice of advocacy. I just did it to feel better in the moment. I didn't actually write it for another day. I sat on it and put down some notes the next day when I was feeling a little bit more uh, back in my body. Uh, And then that the Tuesday night I, I put together the blog, posted it on my blog that night and then I uh, shared it on Twitter and I tagged in News Breakfast and that doing that is how it went viral. Uh, okay, okay. 
So had I not shared it on Twitter and tagged in ABC, no one would know about this. And do you remember why you, why you did that? I just wanted to put, put that feeling out there, maybe to counter the trolling as well and, and just not hide from it. Say, okay, this is my experience. I'm going to try and own this for, for better or worse. So in terms of, in, in some sense, to, to, to counter or to, you know, as part of your rebuttal, um, to, to, you know, uh, have some sort of voice to some of the things that were being said. Or my perception of what might be said. So, Oh, you hadn't looked at that time? No, God, no. I didn't <laughs> go back on social media for a few days <laughs> <laughs> for precisely this reason. And this is where it's in this period where, okay, I've talked about this experience, but actually this is telling me that this is so connected to my broader history of anxiety and depression uh, and that fear of public humiliation, that has deep roots. And my reaction now in this moment you know, is connected to you know, stuff that has a longer lineage back in my life. And so this period just after the interview when I've just posted the blog, this is the time when I'm also thinking, all right, maybe I've got more to say. And that's probably the genesis of the, the additional uh, writings that I've done on it since. So in some sense by leaning into it, you, you found that it wasn't as scary, so to speak. Well, it's like uh, opens the Pandora's box. If I'm going to tell this story, like there's much more to this story than just that moment. Uh, you know, like, like we were talking about before, just before the, the, we started recording, uh, this is not a discrete moment in time. This panic, panic attack and my reaction to it is part of a much longer lead-up where I'm gradually starting to come out uh, as someone who's got mental illness and has struggled with anxiety and depression over time. But, I'm, you know, that coming out would be, it might have a, a, be a one-on-one -on -one discussion with someone. Uh, where they're struggling with something, say, look, I get it, you know, I've, this is, I've been feeling this at other times in my life, often with a, with a student in that kind of situation. Uh, then I remember doing a, a thing on Facebook where for a couple of months I decided every day I'm going to chronologically go through and post a YouTube clip of a song that blew my mind the first time I listened to it, starting from when I was a kid and through my life. And so, of course, you know, music is a window to the soul, right, and to how you're feeling at a given moment in time. It's so coded with the, the story of your life. And it was through that that I gently disclosed, oh, this period, this song helped me because I was feeling this. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was a, a soft disclosure, if you like. Sure. And how, how deep are those roots? Mm, well, this is part of, you know, my treatment and seeking help. So I first realised something that I needed to get help. Something wasn't quite right when I was a PhD student back in Adelaide. So we're talking about 2006, 2007. And at the time I thought, I'm a bit overweight and I can't really kick it. There's probably some emotional reason for that. So I'm going to go see the counsellor at the counselling service at the university. And that was the first time I'd actually gone and, tried to get some kind of assisted therapy 
and so they gave me some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy stuff, you know, which I found didn't really work. You know, I'm not one of Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and although there's some merit to CBT, there's too much that's contributing to how I'm feeling that just trying to say something different about my experience is not going to get it done. There's some deep stuff that needs to be uh, explored and dealt with. Uh, but it, but even like being able to articulate that need like I am now, that's not how I was feeling in that moment, just like I'm not really resonating with cognitive behavioural therapy. And so you know, I did that, that counselling for about six months and then just got on with the, the business of uh, doing my PhD, became a father as well. Don't recommend having a child at the same time as you're trying to do a doctorate. Uh, so think of yeah, multiple stresses coming into your life. As someone who has anxiety, that's a that's a big burden. Uh, then uh, I got my first full time gig with La Trobe University, where I am now in, in 2010, and uh, started went back to counselling again there. And there's a, a great life irony about this. So I was based at the Albury Wodonga campus of La Trobe University. Now when I was uh, 12. I went to Albury on a basketball camp and suffered a trauma there. So I went back to a place where I'd experienced the trauma as a child. And so that brought up some issues, uh, which I started to address through counselling. So now I'm getting to some trauma history and starting to process that. And that was really hard, you know, fronting up to that. Did you know that? Were you cognizant of that? By taking that role, you would also be stepping into that, that space? It wasn't really a, a consideration. Like, obviously, I knew, you know, my history of the place. But, you know, when you're in academia, it's a tough, it's a tough profession. You take your break where you can get it. So that was my break. Uh, I went there. But then either the first time we drove past this place where it happened, it's, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then it yeah, mm. gradually yeah, became more of an issue. And there's a real conflict there, isn't there, in terms of here's something that's awfully difficult and painful and a considerable challenge and and, and, uh, simultaneously this is an incredible opportunity and break for you in academia. Those roles don't come around very often and and, and, uh, there's, there's a bit of tension in the rope, so to speak, about, you know, the thing that you want and the thing that you don't want. You know, after I'd had a few sessions, I was really starting to rip the Band-Aid off on these experiences. And there was just one night where I sunk into this place where I just couldn't talk. And I was really sucked within and feeling really heavy. And I just couldn't say anything. And that lasted most of the night. And, yeah, then I was all right after that. But I think that was the... Uh, I remember my therapist at the time said, when you rip the Band-Aid off, uh, when the wound is exposed to the air, it's going to hurt, but it'll only hurt for a little while and you know, and ultimately it will heal because you let it be exposed to the air, but you've got to go through that moment first. And, and that was that moment for dealing with that particular trauma. It's a nice metaphor, isn't it, so to, to kind of hold on to in trying to understand that for something to heal, we've got to expose it. 
through the air and the air is going to mean that it's going to be sensitive, it's going to kind of uh, flare up, so to speak, or it's going to be more sensitive, at least for a period. Yeah, so there was that. Uh, I haven't really written about that in my other writings. It's not, you know, it's obviously a more complex story that I don't really want to get into publicly, Uh, but it's there. There was some other uh, school bullying kind of stuff as well. Uh, So that came out then. Uh, So that was one phase. Uh, Then at work we had an organisational restructure where my position was abolished but I got redeployed to the Melbourne campus where I've been for the last seven years. Uh, So in itself that, you know, that opened up uh, workplace anxiety triggers of all kinds. That's something I'm starting to explore further now that I can understand how my experience as someone with a mental illness interacts with environmental triggers and I'm just starting to, you know, figure that out and get a language for that now. But really, you know, before then it's all about what are, what are all these different influences from my past that were shaping my anxiety experiences? What were the things that were making me feel this way? I got relentlessly obsessive about trying to figure this out. And every time I'd go through cycles where, you know, I'd come to one revelation and I'd kind of deal with that and then I'd, you know, go back into everyday life and something would happen in in my life and often at work that would raise something that I had to deal with and I'd go into the cycle again. Uh, So we had a a secondary structure at work, which is, again, you know, organisational restructures are intensely traumatic for everyone involved because they just put everyone in such an insecure uh, space and in, in a, a space of powerlessness as well. Uh, so it was in the context of this that, uh, you know, I remember it was the first lecture I did for a subject uh, and I was trying to explain to my students, like, just be kind on the staff because we're going through this thing that's uh, really difficult. Uh, and I outlined some of the, you know, the pathological student behaviours that, you're going to have an impact on the teaching staff. And I went through them systematically and said, look, don't do that. That's going to have this impact. Uh, But do this. This is a a positive way to deal with those concerns. And I had this student who never came to class who messaged me and said, I'm sick of all you lecturers. You're all psychopaths. That was the shittest lecture I've ever had. So demotivating. Uh, I'm like... Who are you? You don't like it. Unenroll. Don't need this. Uh, and emailed back and said, oh, I've got all these mental health issues, like significant mental health traumas. That's why I don't come to class. Uh, and why don't you just quit? It's clear that you hate your job. And at that moment, I did hate my job and he called me on it. He'd never met me. He'd just read it from this lecture experience. And it was like, wow, something's... It made me self-reflect about where I was at in that moment. And so I've got to do something about this because I'm really miserable at this point in time uh, in this work environment. Uh, and I went and talked to a, a trusted senior colleague. And so this was the first time I disclosed this to someone at work. Uh, and they were really fantastic. You know, they shared uh, some of their own experiences and, and encouraged me to go get some help again. So I went... Uh, went to the doctor, 
to my GP and said, look, I'm having this, what do you recommend? Uh, prescribed some antidepressants and, and some counselling uh, as well. So I went into another round of counselling uh, with a psychologist here uh, and she was fantastic. So I was in that process for uh, about a year and a half to two years uh, and delved even further. So it wasn't just the trauma episode, then it was going into a, starting to trace a fear of abandonment uh, that I'd been feeling and what possible routes might be for that uh, and how that would, how both of this trauma and the abandonment fear would manifest in all the relationships I was having and how I was interacting, particularly at work uh, and with, with the relationships at home. Uh, so, yeah, going a little bit deeper and, again, going into to dark places that hadn't seen the light for a while. And how do you feel that's been helpful for you in 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 your... I suppose, onion metaphor of, of, you know, another layer. You know, it seems like, you know, each time that you uh, sought some assistance or spoke with someone trusted, you kind of examined, you peeled back a layer, you kind of looked at it from another perspective. How has that been helpful for you? Well, it's like the, the reward for answering questions is more questions in, in some ways. Uh, but I think self-understanding is really good. I could get to a place of acceptance uh, and being able to accept where I am. If I could understand why I was like that, I, that was really important for me. Uh, so in this round of counselling, like I was doing the, the ACT therapy, you know, the Russ Harris happiness trap kind of thing, uh, and that was reasonably useful. I also, my therapist also encouraged me to start, you know, expressing my feelings creatively. So I started drawing imagery of what I was feeling. Now, none of that stuff's going to go in the NGV as artistic genius, but that wasn't the point of the process. It, you know, it gave me a way to express deep emotional feelings uh, and get them out of my head and out of my body. Uh, and I realized there was so much of this past stuff that was coded and trapped into my body and how I was feeling and it was stuck there, you know. And so uh, problems with difficulties with weight or physical illnesses and stuff like that, this was trapped emotional stuff. And by getting that out, you know, that was a release. Uh, and so that was really important. But every time I've gone through one of these cycles of, of therapy and healing, like I learn new strategies and, and new tips and tricks. And it's like my toolbox for maintaining my health is growing. And I've got little strategies that I can share with other people as well, which I think I've tried to do in my writing. So, you know, I'm not a, a therapist myself, but here's something that I found helpful in my situation. Does that resonate? In some sense, you are a therapist. You, you, you're examining your experience, you know, how you interact with the world, how your history goes out and tries to push you around. You know, how thoughts arise and, and the power that we give them uh, or, or not. Uh, uh, you're, you're very much, you know, uh, by your inquisitive nature, in, 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 in many aspects, examining to see another perspective, which is what a lot of therapy uh, does, at least that. Uh, as a starting point to then uncover other areas to examine. 
uh, with that greater appreciation. You know, I think you, as, as you discussed it in terms of coming to, to accept or, or to adopt, to make room for you as you are, uh, you know, without, with, with, with maybe lesser judgment. Well, there's, there's more to this story. <laughs> so starting to examine relationships within my family, parental relationships, spousal relationships, and then with my son, and what's shaping that. Uh, then I started to do some work on inherited trauma and family history uh, issues, and I realised actually there's a lot in my family background that's probably having an ongoing impact on, on the matrix of family relationships that I'm part of. So on my mother's side, my maternal grandparents were both from Ukraine, uh, and they were both uh, taken to Nazi Germany and were in forced labour camps during the Second World War. Uh, yeah, so that they had an extreme experience. I think my grandmother, my grandfather died when I was reasonably young, so I don't know much about his story. But my grandmother, uh, particularly later in her life, when I'd go over there by myself to have dinner with her, and she'd tell the same old stories, but every time there was just a little added detail to the story. So she constructed this really wonderful mosaic of her experience from that time. Uh, so she was a, a peasant farm girl from near Lviv uh, in Western Ukraine. Like when she was born, that was part of Poland. Uh, and she experienced the, you know, the Soviet Union coming in and taking over that area in the late 30s. Uh, fortunately for her, that was after the, the Great Famine had occurred in, in Ukraine. So she didn't cop the full brunt of that. But... She still experienced the Soviets coming and, you know, taking over their farm and taking all the food and, uh, and the stock and putting them into essentially bonded uh, feudal servitude uh, in that system. And then the Germans came, uh, you know, and she, like many Eastern Europeans at that time, uh, she was taken into bonded labour in Germany and she had to work uh, during the war in a munitions factory. I think it was somewhere near Cologne. And, and even to the day she died, she had arthritis in her knee because she was doing a pe using a pedal-powered lathe uh, machine that she'd worked on there. And just some of the stories that she used to say and tell us about, you know, when there was an Allied bombing run and they used to send them out into the streets to clean up the bodies. And, and uh, and her, what she was telling me was really sanitised. So her life experience was much, much more extreme there than anything she would have told me. Uh, but even like before all that happened, her, her mother died when she was a baby and she had this really difficult relationship with her stepmother who didn't love her at all. So just in my grandmother's history, there's all of these traumas that are adding up. And you can see later in her life how... You know, she wasn't the warmest woman. <laughs> uh, and, you know, looking back, I can see how that shaped her relationship with my mum uh, and my uncle. Uh, and then you can see, like, all of the migrants of that generation that had the same experience. You could see similar mm. patterns across their families. And it's just this web of, web of trauma. Uh, then I looked at, on my paternal side and so obviously my surname's Habib that's Lebanese my great-grandfather emigrated in the 1890s to South Australia and 
you know, obviously that's a time white Australia policy is coming in. Uh, and the Lebanese migrants of that time tried so hard to prove that they were European so they wouldn't get kicked out under the white Australia policy. But experiencing the full brunt of good old Aussie racism. Uh, and there's plenty of stuff in that family history that isn't talked about, but it's clearly there. Uh, and the culture of that family was completely stripped because they were trying to prove that they were European and not uh, Lebanese. And so it got completely anglicised. So not only is there a trauma history there, but there's a, a disconnection from culture and history. So on both sides of my family, I've got this deep heritage that I know very little about and have no cultural anchor as well uh, in which I could locate myself. So there's a, there was a whole lot of stuff going on within my family history that I feel like has contributed to my you know, experience of anxiety and probably a lot more that I'll never know about as well. Mm. There's some... Um Excellent work by, uh, I think, a lady named Eva Jablonka, who, who writes uh, in the space of epigenetics and how you know, trauma is, in some or in, in, in many respects, passed on to the next generation through our, um, I suppose, our DNA footprint, and and how you know there are um, particular parts of DNA that are. Yeah, methylated or, or, or not depending on our environment, you know, and, and everything from, you know, trauma uh, through to even things like uh, our exposure to BPA um, and hence why, you know, pregnant women uh, are encouraged to take folates and you know, the other supplements to... Um, to try and, in, 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 in essence, moderate some of these things that we know clearly. Uh, but there's a lot that's not known clearly uh, that, that is passed on from one heritage to, 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 to the next or one generation to, to the next uh, that I think, you know, is a growing body of evidence to, to, to look at that. So when you say, you know, there is kind of uh, sort of a, a historic experience within within your lineage so, so so to speak you know i think it says something we're not quite sure what but um uh, i think we can make some some assumptions mm. well the the politics analyst in me is really intrigued by this uh, and you think well a country that was established as a totalitarian prison camp uh which the you know the original settlement of white australia was extreme brutality of the convict system, uh, then couple that with the, the genocide of Indigenous peoples. And had, obviously that trauma was not processed. Where has it gone? And so, you know, I'm interested to hear what you think about some of the more, you know, toxic cultural elements of Australian society. Do they have some kind of root in this trauma history? Gosh, I think it's a very complex sort, sort, sort of space. Uh, I mean, I think... We, we certainly know that there are all aspects of uh, nature and nurture. Um, the, the issue that will, will come about is, is the measurement of, of any of these things and, and uh, our, our challenge even with something like anxiety is how do we differentiate nature versus nurture um, and, and, and that interplay. 
you know, and, and, and even measuring what's the, what are the co- contributors for that. So, you know, I might feel, for example, uh, uh, somewhat introverted in my experience and so having to do something that might be a little bit more public or in the open public space may potentially go out and bring that about, but not just because I'm introverted because there's introverted people who are still happy to go out and, and, and do that and don't feel that fear. So introversion isn't a, a fear centre. Um, uh, so it doesn't mean that everyone that's introverted uh, has fear of judgment. There's plenty who, plenty who are extroverted and have a fear of judgment. So there's a real complexity around around that and hence why I think some of the work of, you know, Eva Jablonka and, and, and her col- colleagues who um, I do a clumsy version of explaining what, uh, how, how those um, the different facets, you know, have an interplay with one another. But uh, there's, there's some, um, there's huge kind of connections between our, our environment and, and, you know, how we are. And hence that, that's exactly kind of what we do in in therapy, we, we kind of look at, you know, quite often, what was your upper bringing like, you know, because that's kind of where we learned all of our, uh, all of our norms, you know, all of our beliefs and, and, and this is where we get our stereotypes and, and this is where, in, in essence, you know, so much racism and, and, and sexism and, and, and ageism and whatever, whatever, whatever other ism comes out comes from a series of ideas. None of these things are true or valid or, or, or grounded in any, any real uh, uh, validity. They're, they're just ideas and we adopt them blindly. Um, and in essence, you know, anxiety is also somewhat an adoption of, of ideas. Uh, and when we can question those, at least it helps to kind of loosen the grip that they have on us. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, pra- the practical application of, of this environment versus self interplay you know, it comes in when we think of workplace and like me as a as someone who has anxiety how do i interact with the the organizational systems in which i'm immersed in in the workplace or in any other institutional setting that i interact with my, my, my apologies on the outside you know people would look at you and say you know here's you know dr ben habib you know, clearly, you know, an, an amazing professional, very successful, ticking all the boxes, you know, working in a university in Melbourne. He's got the dream, you know, like he, he, he's, he's a high achiever, you know. You know, the rest of us are, are trying to catch up, you know. The, the surface stuff is, 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 is kind of a, a distraction from uh, the reality, which is, you know, the thing that you and I have in common is that we're both of a human origin. Mm-hmm. And so the human feels the same thing, you know, experience the same thing. We, you know, uh, illness does not discriminate. Mm-hmm. And so if something's going to get us, you know, it's because we're human. It'll, 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 it'll get both of us. It doesn't care what our status, role, age, whatever it might be is. It's going to get us. And, 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 you know, despite, you know, wearing a suit or, or, or you know, shorts or, you know, is my, is my T-shirt ripped or am I wearing my best you know, shirt and bow tie? Yeah. And that's a great point on our, our shared humanity. 
and yet we have all these institutions that we're a part of that are these hierarchical systems of coercive power relationships that dehumanise in a lot of ways and, and often in ways that we don't notice because we think they're normal but actually they're doing us great harm. Uh, so one of the pernicious ways that these power relationships manifest when look at workplace mental health strategies, they're all about individualising responsibility for mental health onto the, the individual person. Uh, and that really bothers me uh, because there's a complex mix. Like, yeah, there's lots of stuff that I'm responsible for and I need to take responsibility for. And I think of my own experience. I've had the counselling. I've done the hard yards and the hard work. I've shed the tears. I've talked about it. I take care of myself. And yet in these specific institutional environments, I'm still having these really adverse reactions. Is there actually something toxic about these larger environments that's contributing to how I'm feeling because I'm having very specific negative reactions in a lot of these places. So I, I'm trying to flesh that out. I mean, it's a really good, it's a really good question because when, when I think about the way that we live our lives, you know, and, and the way that we experience life, uh, the fact that we even have these ideas called deadlines can feel toxic you know, mm, depending mm. on what, how we define what toxic is, you know, you know, the, the fact that something's stressful, that it goes out and increases our angst, that we worry about, that keeps us, up, keeps us up at night, you know, it's an arbitrary time frame. And in, in some sense, how else do we operate? Uh, and so it's kind of this strange tension between, between the two where I imagine there's lots of things that we could call, you know, air quotes, toxic or, you know, stressful or provoke angst, you know, uh, discomfort, pain that is inherent in, in living, um, you know, in, in basically the way that society is built, you know, that, that society these days, has, you know, is, is not easy and we need to kind of learn to, to carry it um, uh, or to try and see it in a different way. Um, cause it's kind of hard to find any organization that doesn't adhere to these kind of general rules, mm-hmm. which, you know, in, yeah. in, in, in the big picture are all completely made up, you know, um, just, just any rule will do whether it's constitution or not. Um, we just make up a rule, you know, if someone's being late, they're being disrespectful. Well, that's a rule. No different to if you stop at a red light. You know, you're a good driver. Um, you know, we we just make these rules up, and some obviously are much more helpful than others. You know, if you hold, you know, uh, the idea of someone has to be on time to be respectful. If you hold that tightly, you're in trouble because people are going to be late all the time in your life, and you're going to feel disrespected all the time. Um, probably quite useful to hold the one that you should stop at a red light. It'll probably save your life a few times. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And these are great observations because you know, now we get to the international relations aspect of, of what I do. And I look at some of the chaos that's in the world now and see, well, actually, these, these systems and these norms and rules that we've developed, they don't seem to be very adaptive for 21st century problems. Our political systems are really dysfunctional. You know, you don't get Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or, uh, or people like that in political systems that are stable and are functioning well, those kinds of personalities 
are a product of chaos. I look at you know the climate change uh, issue and you know eco anxiety. I've had that since the mid two thousands when I started learning about climate change. I thought you know I could see the end game of this and this is really serious. And yet, so you're dealing with this really serious big picture issue and the dissonance between that and you know, lack of action in your ordinary life or from the institutions that are part of it, just ignoring that. Uh, and you can young people get this. You can see from the global climate strikes and the, the angst that, you know, that youth have got. They fully understand this and they're not comfortable with the, the cognitive dissonance of this space of inaction. Uh, so I guess I, well, I think we've really, really mapped out this journey of me thinking about all of these influences on my anxiety and my mental health from me right up to this global meta stuff. And I've been trying to think about well, how does this mix in together and what can I do about all of these things? Because obviously a big, big picture issue like climate change uh, requires a radically different strategy of action to me processing trauma or me figuring out how to function properly in my workplace again requires a different set of strategies and uh, and coping mechanisms uh, to those other things. So, yeah, figuring out what to do, where to put my energy and where I'm going to get the greatest leverage to heal myself and, and be healthy, uh, that's my next challenge. What are you leaning towards? What, what, what are your clues at the moment? What are your thoughts? Where, where, where do you think you'll go with that? Well, that's where the, the individualization problem uh, I think, you know, the bigger in scale the problem is, the more you need to collaborate with other people. Uh, you know, if there's stuff that I can do and explore on my own, I'm doing that. But I might need help from a counsellor to explore deeper stuff. If I want to have a healthy workplace, then I'm going to have to collaborate with other people. I'm going to have to have these kinds of conversations. I'm going to have to engage you know, with people who have power in these institutions and try and come up with, uh, you know, a set of arrangements that are healthy for everyone. Uh, and then some of these bigger cultural issues, you know, that you're getting into the realm of social movements and, and other public advocacy stuff there. Uh, so I, I think I'm looking at my mental health from this really big picture perspective uh, where my entire existence is shaping how I'm feeling uh, and how I interact with everything in my society is shaped by my mental health experience. Uh, in some ways, it's really exciting because, it, you know, you can, you can start to understand your connection with everything around you when you look at it that way, so it's not isolating. But on the other hand, it's really damn daunting because, <laughs> you know, the, the process of healing is just so all-encompassing. Like it has to become your life. So, yeah, I can't say I'm. I've made enormous strides in how to how to deal with that, but that's kind of like the my healing project as it stands at the minute. In some sense, then apologise if I've read this wrong, but uh, it sounds like you're exploring a position, going from healing on an individual level to healing as a collective in, in by virtue of connecting 
with others, you know, that, that connectedness uh, can be part of the healing um, space for you in terms of feeling more uh, connected and bonded and secure uh, as, a, as a group, as a community, as a, as a people, rather than just your focus being on the micro, you know, going more, more sort of macro for, for you feels like it's the the next space yeah definitely i think some of my anxiety symptoms are a product of feeling isolated and feeling alone and not feeling i have support but that's not how humans exist like the fact of that we have a society uh is a product of all these webs of interconnections and uh, and yet we've got these ideas of individualism that are not consistent with the reality of connection that we have uh so I know I feel in a better space. My uh, resilience is much increased when I'm connected with other people. Uh, you know, I'm in good relationships with other people and feeling love and be able to give love. And I'm, but also being able to heal some of the toxicity that I produce as a result of my past trauma experiences. So it's not just what's been done to me. I've done some bad things too. And I need to own them and understand why. You know, I put myself in that space so I can be that loving and productive member of community that, that I want everyone else to be. So it's, it's the, the micro and the macro together. There's some amazing work that comes from uh, uh, research like Johan Hari, if you're familiar uh, with him, who I think has got a, uh, an excellent TED talk around the idea of using, you know, heroin once, you know, if you try it once, you'll be addicted forever, you know, so don't ever go out and try it. And he, he looked at some of the factors that contribute to, to that. And so the, the famous experiment goes something like this, so please don't quote me, but, uh, you know, put, put a rat in a, in, a, in a box by itself and give it the option between water and uh, heroin water. Um, and obviously it needs to have a little bit of a, um, a sweetness because otherwise it, it, it's quite bitter and disgusting. So, um, But the, the, um, the rat goes down tastes from, from each and, um, you know, because it's inquisitive uh, and then almost, you know, solely goes and, and, and consumes from the heroin water. Um, and so, you know, the idea came, you know, from, from that experiment that, you know, you try it once, you're hooked and, 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 and you'll never get off. And so that was widely adopted. And, and uh, another experiment came in. And if, if you're interested, have a look at uh, uh, some YouTube um, videos on, on Rat Park. Um, so a new experimenter looked at, at uh, the different variables and, and basically developed a, a park uh, where a whole lot of rats lived. And so, you know, in, in that space of um, uh, rat park, they had, you know, the animals uh, had, you know, capacity to go out and have a hierarchy. They had sex, socialization, mazes, activities to do, you know, chasing one another, places to hide and so on. So it was quite a, a, a rich, um, you know, uh, uh, inclusive, vibrant space. And uh, without sort of boring you too much with all the um, uh, uh, different aspects, uh, experimenters would go out and, and give uh, 
an animal that was addicted to heroin, you know, in a box by itself. And they would put it back into Rat Park with the opportunity to have heroin. And they found that the animal in Rat Park would stop taking the heroin water. So the heroin water was, was something that was very appealing when they were alone, when they were isolated, when they had no one around them. Uh, but once they were integrated back into bonding, that space of, of, of bonding, it was not appealing anymore. And so experimenters did all sorts of interesting uh, different variations of this where they um, made the whole community take the heroin water only by denying the water. And so they, they made them addicted and then they gave them days uh, where they had choice days. And they found that the, 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 the rats, even in choice days, would, would go out and choose the water despite having um, what we would call symptoms of withdrawal uh, uh, because they're in that space. And it's fascinating that, that this, this moderating factor of isolation or bonding plays such a huge huge um, uh, role and I know that pharmaceutical companies have done some some similar things in testing um, uh, med different medications you know the way to make a, an animal depressed or, 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 or anxious or you know despair or what you know depending on what you're trying to do you can chuck them in a in a room by themselves with zero stimulation and and it makes animals go mad and hence why uh, things like solitary confinement are against the Geneva Convention because it's called torture. Mm. It's horrific stuff. So you and I can be in a big, big city, you know, we, 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 with thousands of people around and yet if we feel disconnected, you know, by virtue of that, we're going to start feeling that and we, we're certainly going to feel that in, in uh, you know, feelings like depression, anxiety, you know, um, emotional fluctuations and, and, and the like. So I think... You know, uh, uh, not having spoken for too long, but uh, I think you're on the money. You know, part of our healing process, you know, whether it be yourself, I, or anyone else, is, is to, to bond with others, to be connected, you know, and not just say, oh, I'm part of a book club. I need to have friends in that book club. I need to care for those people in the book club. I need to know when someone's going into hospital because they're unwell. I need to be connected. Like it's got to be close bond, not, you know, I'm a football fan and so I go and watch, you know, the Canberra Raiders play. play. Um, that's not quite going to cut it. Uh, yeah, being part of a crowd of 100,000 at the MCG doesn't mean you're connected to any of them, does it? But, I mean, this stuff's not a secret, is it? The connection is good for our well-being. So the question is, wh why? Unfortunately, in, in some sense, it feels like it is, you know. That, 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 that it's, I don't think the power of it, the, how potent bonding, connectedness is understood. I think, I think it's, 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 it's like stupidly potent. We, mm. we just go, oh, yeah, you know, it would be good if you went out and socialised more. No, 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 no. This isn't about socialization. This is about going out and bonding. You know, there's a potency that comes with that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that, like, this kind of social cohesion is built into traditional cultures in a way that it's not in ours. And so, 
like if you ask the question, what do you do about this? Well, that's not a project of personal resilience. That's a political project about what you do about that. So it, it can, it, you know, it leads to some radical places about what do you do uh, in order to create conditions, communities that are healthy for people. And likewise, in the meantime, uh, uh, maybe on an individual level, we can also, in, in, in connection with that, work really hard at bonding with our fellow humans mm-hmm. where, where, where we actively seek that out. I mean, I know Australia, you know, we're, we're wildly, you know, individualistic. And I know when I go back to, you know, Serbia where my, my heritage is from, uh, and I can't tell you the, you know, the historical sort of nature and, and, and the like, but I tell you what, uh, it's a whole lot more of a, you know, community collective sort of approach where, you know, I'll sit at my uncle's house and, and you know, no word of a lie, four people will drop in each day and they'll drop in or, or they'll yell out from the veranda, hey, how you going, you know, come over. You know, while we're, we're just putting something together, come in and have lunch with us. There's, you know, we, we tend to kind of organize things in advance and we'll schedule it in rather than drop in. You know, that, 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 that nature of my house is your house. Um, you know, we're kind of like, no, 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 my house isn't your house. My house is my house. And I'm going to put, you know, a, I'm going to spend thousands of dollars putting a, you know, a uh, fancy fence around it so no one can see into us and look 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 over the fence heaven forbid boundaries and fences hey so does this sort of aspect kind of feed into a lot of the work that you look 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 at in terms of your inter inter international relations um you know work that uh obviously you know you're you know an expert in yeah it does it does so i you know did my phd work on north korea and you know we know it's a, a dictatorship uh, it's got this cult of personality around the leaders and the whole system is intentionally built to eliminate the possibility of people developing bonds between people because when people bond together, that leads to collective action, which leads to a threat to the system of power. So the whole idea is that you create a system where people are competing against each other, where they can get ahead by ratting each other out, where they can get in trouble for collusion uh, or any kind of collective action, uh, and it has it's rounded out by an ideology that encourages you to focus solely on the leader as the your path to salvation. And you just think, wow, some of that stuff. I can see echoes of that in our society here, uh, and the you know the effects on people are so pernicious and so damaging. You know, of eliminating their capacity to bond with each other and to establish connection, uh, you know, leaves damage. So I think about for looking at trauma, like even if that North Korean regime falls tomorrow, the legacy of that trauma is going to last for a long, long time. It's incredible how much this this concept of collective, uh, you know, togetherness, bonding, connection plays in whether it be an international arena or our own individual psychological experience you know that uh in some sense the 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 dictator for each of us is the mind you know telling us 
know, don't do this or don't connect. You could get rejected. You know, I'm being abandoned. They don't like me. What happens if I'm judged? After yeah. my panic attack, it's it's an embarrassment. It's a failure, and you know I'm, I'm never going to be able to recover. I'm not suggesting that's what the thoughts were, but you know we we've all in some sense felt these things, and so the best thing to do, you know, at, at least in that moment, it feels like it's to escape, to retreat, to isolate, um, and and that thing that uh, you know we've come full circle. The thing that kind of attracted me to, to reaching out to you is that you didn't do that. You 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 said bullshit. I'm going out and I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to talk about it rather than hiding and, and being scared. I know that, you know, it wasn't, you know, a fairy tale exactly like that, but, uh, you know, you did in that, in that moment of, of you know, anguish and pain, stick your neck out and say, you know, I'm going to kind of connect with us. I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to face my fears, so to speak. That's right. The road back for me in that moment was when people connected with me and I realised that I wasn't alone and that there were lots of people. (laughs) It was incredible that you had hundreds of emails from people around the world, uh, you know, essentially sharing the same thing. Some of them were disclosing this stuff for the first time to anyone. So that was was really touching but also it was a big burden. It's kind of crazy. One of my, you know, one of my biggest passions in in, in psychology is to take away uh, these these from what I believe are stupid um, categories. You know, they're they're just unhelpful categories most of the time. You know, to go out and say this person has got this disorder and they've got that disorder and so on, rather than describing the experience. Once we go out and describe the actual experience, we recognize that most of us have felt or feel these things quite regularly. Uh, and the, the problem is, is that when we use a cat- category, we say, oh, no, no, that's not me. I don't have that. And the other problem of the category is saying, if you do have it, there's something wrong with you. Rather than saying, oh, so you've got the category of human. Oh, I've got that one too. Uh, yeah, you and I are both made out of, you know, you know, flesh and bones and then, and, and, you know, I kind of get what it feels like to be in, you know, my skin and sounds like you've got some similar things in your skin and looking around when we're bonded with others. There, there, there's a lot of things that we go out and, and uh, 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 see are the same and, you know, whether it be becoming a parent we realize no matter what your role is, no matter what your job is, no matter what, what you do in life, uh, you've still got to go out and wipe your baby's bottom, um, you know, at you know, 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, you know, it, it's the leveler, you know, and, and it's a beautiful thing and, and it, it, it's hard going. You know, there's lots of things that level us. Um, and I think being human is a nice leveler and so I'll, uh, one of my passions is, is to try and remove this ongoing conversation of, of um, diagnostics, you know, that we can, we can just remove the word disorder. You know, we can, we can go to some experiencing obsessions and compulsions. I don't have to call it a disorder because most conscientious people are absolutely, you know, orderly uh, and, you know, have compulsions to keep things orderly. Um, and they think about those things quite often and, it, you know, they're stressed if they don't keep things in order. 
just that one might be a little bit more functional than the other. But even that's questionable at times because I tell you what, conscientiousness can also cause relationship difficulties. Um, but we don't call that a disorder. We just go and say, oh, you're highly conscientious and you have relationship difficulties. That's no, really interesting. I got asked in an interview recently, yeah, would I call my anxiety a medical condition? And I felt really uncomfortable with that. Uh, so that's when you start pathologizing this stuff. Uh, one, that's individualizing it. Yes. Two, that's okay, let's treat that with pharmaceuticals and just medicate you like you're a machine. And then three, it reinforces the idea that there's something inherently wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, now, I understand there is a place from time to time people that legitimately need medication Absolutely. Uh, to, treat, to treat stuff, but there's no healing that comes from med- uh, medication. Uh, you know, it's just a palliative, and I, I've always had discomfort from that. I've had two periods where I was on antidepressants uh, for a, sh- a period of time, and I weaned off both times. It, just, it helped me in, in a moment as a coping mechanism, but it was never going to get me to a better place. I had to do the work. Uh, and ultimately I felt better for getting off them and, and doing the self-exploration. I think except as a commitment therapy has a lot to say about, you know, the, how we might use, you know, medication. And recently in a podcast with Kirk Strozel, um, he discussed, you know, talking, talking about um, uh, how we might go and integrate medication in, 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 within therapy and he's working with a book uh, with Rod, Rob Percy up in Brisbane um, who's a psychiatrist you know we, which really looks at functionality rather than symptom reduction you know can I use something to help me you know uh, function better no different to hey my leg is sore I'm going to use a walking stick to help me go out and walk um, but also with the understanding that if my walking stick isn't there maybe I can still walk um, you know, I've got to kind of make, make room for a sore, sore leg because it's going to be there, there at times. Not suggesting that there aren't other times that you might need not only a walking stick but maybe someone to get, you know, under your arm and, and, and prop you up because you know, there's different fluctuations. But uh, I think there's a nice sort of position to, to, to kind of hold. You know, another good place that I would uh, 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 maybe recommend for, for our listeners to, to – explore is some of the work from Joanna Moncrief, who is a practicing psychiatrist who I think has a lot to say about, um, you know, that, that space of functionality and how, how medication might be prescribed. Um, she's fairly outspoken. She's written some books, um, uh, but she's, she, she's done so having looked at, you know, significant meta-analyses on, on you know, huge bodies of work and literature from all around the world and I think it's a really good read. So some good places to look at because um, it's not that medication's you know, evil or bad. We just got to look at what, what, what's it intended to do and if the intention is wrong, I think we've gone out and uh, you know, potentially causing more grief. It's a tool, it's not an end. Ben, I've got to uh, say thank you so much for uh, you know, your your openness you know being being candid about your experience and 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 talking about it i know it's been uh, uh you know quite a journey and continues to be to be human um you know to to kind of buck the trend so to speak and and you know 
come out, um, which is, you know, a funny term in, in and of itself. Um, you know, I'm going to come out and I'm, I'm human uh, when I go through, through challenges. Uh, but I really appreciate, you know, th- this conversation that you have started and, and uh, you know, I'm sorry it came from that sort of place, um, but in some sense I'm glad it did because that's, uh, that's a started, you know, from, from what I can see, you know, a much bigger conversation as well. How can people find out more about, you know, uh, uh, what you do at the moment, your blogs, you know, how, how you go out and, uh, you know, share share these things. Where can they find out more about you? Yeah, my blog's at drbenjaminhabib.com. Uh, that's a, a clearinghouse of all my professional activities. So there's some international relations stuff, there's some permaculture and environmental stuff. Uh, but for the mental health uh, stuff, there's a tab at the top on mental health and anxiety. Uh, that's got a listing of all the writings I've done and, and media appearances as well. So uh, the link to this podcast will end up on that page as well. I've read quite a few of them and, and uh, you, I love your writing style. It's really good. It's really good. It's, uh, you, you could have a uh, j- journalist um, background if, if you ever wanted to give up the IR. Yeah, thanks, Nesh. And my style, look, I'm not professing to be an expert. I'm just talking about my experience. It's not my job to tell people what to do. This is just my experience and it happens to resonate with lots of people. So that's where I'm coming from there. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful having you and I know that listeners are going to get a whole lot of value out of that. And uh, make sure you go to, what was the website again? DrBenjaminHabib.com. DrBenjaminHabib.com. Cheers, Ben. Thanks heaps. Thanks, Ned. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.